This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramatush Ohlone land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. This week, we are revisiting an episode from our archives featuring a conversation with author and chef Nick Sharma, originally recorded on December 4th, 2018. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Good evening. And good evening to all of you. Thank you for coming out tonight. It's uh, quite an exciting opportunity to celebrate this creation of this beautiful book. I mean, it's just stunning. And I was so happy when it ended up on my doorstep. And I started looking through and thinking, oh my gosh, and I get to meet you and I get to talk to you and I get to ask you questions. And maybe we could start, though, kind of going back uh, to your, your early life in India and we could talk a little bit about your parents, who we spoke a little bit about where they were from and talk maybe a little bit how they met and then... Of course, yeah. So I was born and brought up in Bombay. Um, I still say Bombay, even though it's changed to Mumbai, because when I left, that's what it was called. And their airport code is B-O-M, so I just stick with it. Um, so I was born and brought up in Bombay in a suburb called Bandra, um, right by um, the Arabian Sea. My mom is Roman Catholic and my dad's Hindu. Uh, my dad's from the north, from a state called Uttar Pradesh, in a small town called Mathra. And my mom's from was born and brought up in Bombay, but her family's from Goa. And so they were very different. Their families were really different. And um, they had a love marriage, which is kind of unusual when you think about the whole concept that is sold about India. You know, you hear about arranged marriages all the time. So they had um, different faiths, different backgrounds. Um two different parts of the country. Um, they spoke different languages, but they fell in love and they met in Bombay when my dad moved to Bombay. Uh, they worked at the same company, fell in love. And um, my mother actually ran away to be with my dad because she knew her family wouldn't approve. And uh, both families didn't speak for, I I want to say four, four and a half to five years after I was born. Um, so it was interesting just to, you know, grow up in that dynamic and even... Um, I remember as a child uh, visiting um, one of my uncles on my dad's side in Bombay. And every time I would come into the house, he would shut the door and go inside. He, would, he, would, he had taken a vow not to speak to my dad. Um, he does now. But it was just kind of one of those weird things where as a child, you see these things and you don't know why they're happening, why it's such a big deal. And it was really never discussed with me. Uh, I think because my parents didn't want me to have any biases or, you know, feel like I symbolize something that shouldn't have been. Um, so my parents, obviously, because they had an arranged marriage, things were very liberal. They couldn't really point fingers at me. I have a younger sister, so they couldn't really point fingers at us um, in what we wanted to do in life, because you could easily throw that back at them. And then uh, I, I want to say... After maybe a year after my sister was born, things had like calmed down. Uh, we were everybody was talking, everyone was fine. I think grandchildren kind of do that, where everybody kind of calms down and 
they move on with life as you once should. Um, the other interesting thing was because my parents came from different faiths, um, their cultures were really different. My dad came from a Brahmin Hindu family, which was very dairy-centric, their diet. Um, there were things, um, the food was very vegetarian. I mean, it was vegetarian, except for family members that had moved away. Um, and some of them ate meat, but everyone on my dad's side ate vegetables and there was a lot of dairy in their food. We would go visit my uh, dad's side of the family in the north and I remember my grandmother would not allow eggs um, and she was widowed. And this is something that I learned um, much later in life that she couldn't eat. She had taken a vow not to eat onions and garlic because it's considered um, an ingredient. Those are considered ingredients that increase sexual arousal. And as a widow, you shouldn't do that. And so she had taken that vow by herself. And, you know, even though the kids told her you should, she would cook with it, but for her, the kids or whoever else, but wouldn't eat that. She used an ingredient called asafoetida or hing to create that same taste. Um, and so that was something really, for me, very interesting. The other thing was when my mom would come with us to visit, and my mom hated going there, um, but my grandmother would never take water from my mom or anything my mom cooked because she said my mother was unclean because she ate meat. Um, so there were like a lot of these interesting um, cultural exchanges happening and you watch it as a child thinking, okay, it's kind of funny. Like she doesn't want water from my mom. You know, it's, it's weird. But then my mom's side of the family now, they were really interesting because they were much more liberal. They had all grown up in a large city like Bombay, which is such a big metropolis. You've had historically people coming in because it was a trade city, a big port. You had people coming in from all over the world, from the British to uh, the Portuguese. Then you also had the Africans coming in for centuries. And so a lot of things had made their way. And so Bombay has historically been a very, I wouldn't say completely liberal, but definitely a large city where a lot of ideas were coming together. And in Bombay, you could go out. I remember as a kid, it's one of the safer cities also for women where you could stay out late at night by yourself and you, you're safe, depending on where you are in the city. It's Restaurants are open late at night. It's kind of like New York in its own way, where you know restaurants are open late, you get food from all over the world. There are a lot of different things happening. And consequently, living in Bombay and just by the nature of both my parents, we were allowed to explore food. Nothing was ever told to us like, okay, it's meat, don't eat this or don't eat that. Definitely, like all good parents, they try and force things on you. I hate certain kinds of squashes uh, because my dad insisted that we had to, I had to eat that growing up. And so I still don't do certain things like turnips. I hate turnips. So you'll never see me write a recipe about turnips or even cook turnips in this lifetime. It's not going to happen. Um, so there are certain things, um, yeah, that I hold baggage on. <laughs> uh, but Growing up in that household was really interesting because I thought that was the norm. When you don't have a comparative endpoint, that becomes your comparative endpoint, what you grew up with. And a lot of my friends did not come from mixed faith backgrounds in India. So it was interesting that they would only celebrate one particular holiday. So on the other hand, in my family, um, we would celebrate a lot of the Christian holidays as well as a, a lot of the Hindu holidays. Not all of them because my dad's family was living in America and London at the time, or and a few of them were still up north, but we didn't have that much interaction. So my dad did what he could 
to the best of his abilities to introduce us to festivals like Diwali, um, you know, all the fun festivals. Because uh, I think that's more exciting for a child. And then my mom's family, we did everything. So my mom's family was, um, I wouldn't say strict, but my grandmother and my grandfather really adhere to certain things like where we couldn't eat meat on Fridays because that's a very Roman Catholic tradition that's done, even if it's not Good Friday. You just do it throughout the year. Um, and so a lot of these traditions were things that I took for granted. You don't pay attention to them. And then the food that they would introduce us to was obviously food that they grew up with. So you would have my mother cooking her food, which was from Goa, which was more Eurocentric, Eurocentric more meat-driven, uh, coconut-focused. You'd have vinegar. And then you'd have my dad's food, which was heavily, you know, um, there was ghee in it. There were vegetables. A lot of stuff was fried, you know, because that's what he likes. And you'd have all of these things sitting at the table. And I thought it was normal. But then I'd go to my friends' house, houses, and as I got older, they would have food only from one place. So it was a very interesting dynamic to see kind of this two, this weird mix of dishes, which I thought was normal. And then I go to everyone else's houses thinking that was weird, that they only had stuff from one place. And I couldn't understand why. Um, but it's also not that uncommon if you think about the history of India. India has been a country or rather large region for the longest time where people were coming from all over the world. You had the Persians, you had, um, you know, the British, the Portuguese, the French, the Dutch. All these countries were coming in and introducing elements that had slowly over centuries become a part of Indian cuisine. You've got um, the Chinese that were coming to Calcutta and um, they created the Indo-Chinese cuisine. Um, and, you know, it's kind of makes sense. Things are adapting and acclimating and expressing themselves over time. So, you know, I grew up in uh, Bombay and then I went to high school there. Um, I didn't grow up rich. In fact, I grew up in um, a studio apartment uh, because Bombay is an expensive city. Um, and real estate is, it's crowded, it's real estate's expensive. The options for uh, careers are also limited because everyone's fighting for the same price. There's just, there's just not a lot of resources. And my parents weren't wealthy either. Um, we were kind of, I would, it would be low middle class here, but that would be up, I guess, upper middle class. I'm not quite sure what now, what the dynamic is. But we were never lacking for anything, I will say this. And, um, you know, I went to high school um, in Bombay. I went to a Catholic high school. Um, and that's kind of like how the course of my life went, where I was experiencing things from a very different cultural perspective. So it was a very um, Roman Catholic upbringing and school. And then you had this double dynamic going on at home. And... The other thing that started to happen when I was in high school was I was find I found myself attracted to men, which I didn't know anyone who was gay at the time. And the only I, it had come up in conversations with my parents where they knew people were gay, and the only people that they knew were um, celebrities. And surprisingly, all three of them were musicians. My it was George Michael. Elton John and Freddie Mercury. Those were the three gays that my mother knew. And for the longest time, I thought 
if you're gay, you automatically have to be a musician. And I knew I couldn't sing. So <laughs> it just never made sense to me. And I said, you know what? There's something like not fitting. Either you're not gay or you have to be a musician. Like it has to be, this has to fit. This equation needs to make sense. So, but as you get older, you get a little more sensible. You start to get curious as to why you're attracted to men. And I... I think I was displaying different kind of mannerisms um, in school. I was definitely um, nervous. At the same time, I was also very bookish because I was very uncomfortable. I was in an all-boys school and kids in general are cruel. And I could see um, I would get picked on quite a bit because I was tiny. Um, you never, never fight back. And um, I would get bullied. A lot. And I hated school. So I moved into books. I would spend my afternoons at the live school library going through books. And that's when I kind of did my research and said, I need to find out what's, why am I attracted to men? Because it's one of those things where it's very electrifying, but it's also very terrifying. Um, and in India, the stuff, so as I started to look into things, you would read in the newspapers or hear on TV about how someone was either beaten up by the police or, you know, like beaten up in villages. Uh, they were killed or their family members would um, behead them. You, you'd hear all these crazy stories. And it was frightening because I didn't know at the time whether, what, did anyone actually have a success story beyond the three musicians that my mother spoke about? <laughs> um, and I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable enough talking to my parents about it. Um, I didn't feel comfortable talking to my cousins about it. Um, and so there was just no one. And so I started to look into books or media to kind of find out what was going on. And back then, the internet also wasn't a big part of our lives. Uh, so books were predominantly what I, you know, kind of went to find out what was going on. And luckily, I had access to that. Um, the other thing that started to happen at the same time, because I was so bookish in India, you're kind of pushed into one direction. Um, career-wise, at a very early age, you're pushed into either medicine, into engineering, or some kind of business, or maybe law. Law and business are kind of one of those things, if you couldn't get in the first two, then, you know, consider law or business. Um, and my parents really wanted me to be a physician because everyone on my dad's side, I would say maybe 80% of my cousins are physicians, so they thought it would be a natural kind of Fit, let him go there. And I was really happy. I had, um, as a child, I had started to develop an interest for biology and chemistry. I, I was really excited to see things change in front of me. And this is when I didn't realize that I was also being drawn towards cooking um, because they were such experimental fields to begin with. And I think the natural curiosity of the science drew me into both. I would go through my mother's drawer. She had this huge drawer in her cabinet where she kept recipes, cutouts from old newspapers, magazines, and a couple of cookbooks that she, I think her goal was to cook from them after she got married. Funny enough, my mother actually hates to cook. And uh, which is probably why I kind of started to overcompensate as a child because I was sick of eating the same thing. <laughs> And in India, we also have this culture where the uh, we have maids. So my parents would have a maid that would come to cook. And that was it. She would come from a certain time to a certain time, cook, and then leave. That was a thing. And I also got fed up with that. 
And no one wanted to do anything. And my mom would say, you just like eating fancy food all the time. And I said, no, it's not that. It's, I'm just really sick of what you cook. <laughs> and I, I started to go through her stuff. I would get Thursdays off from high school. And Saturdays were my half day. Thursday, no one was at home. I was left alone, which was fantastic. So I could go through her stuff and then start tinkering in the kitchen. And I started small. Obviously, a lot of mistakes were made. I remember one of the things that early on I started to do was to fry an egg. That was probably the first thing I learned to cook from my mom. And once she felt comfortable that I could handle the gas stove, she let me kind of venture out. And, you know, I didn't cut myself that often, so it's okay. Um, and so I started going through her these recipes that she had amassed. They were big tomes. Like, I think, remember, there were three binders this big. And I would start going through them, and she had all these interesting things. And then some of them had photos. And having not traveled outside the country, that had become my passport to the world. Because encyclopedias were my number one Christmas gift that I asked for every year. And no one had to ask me what I wanted. They knew he wanted an encyclopedia, so he would get an encyclopedia. And then the cookbooks, they just threw me into a whole nother world where I would see people eating different. Beyond, and there were things that I had never heard of. At the time, I didn't know what a turkey was. Um, you know, I grew up eating meat, so I knew what ham was, chicken. But turkey, like, what is a turkey? And then even the way people at the time, and it's not done anymore, but people would flute their poultry with the little chef's hats made of paper on the legs. No one does that anymore, but that was the thing that was done a long time ago. And it was just fascinating to see all these different pra like practices happening. And I said, I want to do that. How do I do that? Um, so I started to cook. And at the same time, I had also started to experiment with actual experiments in the house. Um, I got my first chemistry kit. And I learned about, I remember in high school, exothermic reactions. And I said, oh, something can get hot. Ended up burning a couple of sheets in the house, got into trouble for that. Uh, but I realized my path at that point was going in the scientific direction. My parents were really excited that they said, oh, he's going to go into medicine. And so I started pursuing that as a career field. My mother went back to work after she had my sister and she felt that we were old enough to uh, be left on our own. And whenever we had our days off from school, we would go to my grandmother's house um, on my mom's side and she lived close by. So it wasn't like we were really left alone. But um, my mother went back and started to work. My dad was already working. My dad was a photographer working in advertising. And my mom, on the other hand, decided to go back to school. And she, at the time, computers were kind of becoming a thing. And so she started, got a degree in that, and then started to work in hospitality and management, which is kind of funny because she hates to cook and she landed up there. And I was also interested in cooking. And I think when I was in my early teens, I told her, I said, so I'm, you know, considering maybe going into culinary school. And she said, no. She said, I don't think you have the personality to sit in a courtroom and peel onions all day long. I just don't see you doing that. Like your fingers getting cut, bleeding. You just don't have the stamina to deal with that. So I said, fine, she's going to shut me down. So I, um, my dad's also an artist by training. And I can draw well. I can't paint well, but I can draw decent. And he said, I don't think you should go into an artistic field because I've done that. And 
you really have to be a hustler and you don't have that in you. So this is like this whole self-confidence thing from my parents, right? <laughs> um, and so they said, you should just like stick with this focus on medicine. So I said, fine. And I did enjoy lab in school. I loved it. I loved, um, you know, like the making your microscopic slides and looking at cells and, you know, doing ex those experiments because both cooking and just doing an experiment they're both research in their own way. And I didn't think about it too much at that time. I said, oh, you know, this is why I actually like it. But I ended up then going, getting accepted into uh, a pre-med program in India. And that's what I was doing. So I got a degree in microbiology and biochemistry and then went on to get a master's in Bombay in um, biochemistry, medical biochemistry. But... At the same time, at this point, I had kind of understood that I was gay. And just seeing and knowing that this, you know, living in Bombay, I didn't know what my future was in terms of not only being openly gay and living a happy life. And I knew my parents wouldn't push me into marrying anyone. But I would watch my friends who were straight. And they would go. To, it was the little things, you know, you watch your friends who are straight going to proms, you know, with a date that they wanted to be with. I would have to go with a friend that I really did not want to be with. I mean, I liked my friends, but I just didn't want to be with her at this thing. And I'm sure she didn't want to be with me either, but we couldn't really talk about it. And you're sitting there and it's no fun, honestly. And I wanted to get out of that. But I also wanted a better future. And I knew that science would be my exit, my passport, basically, or my plane ticket to get out. So I started to study really hard and I was in the University of Bombay getting a master's in medical biochemistry. And I applied in the first year. I took my standardized tests, um, you know, and I think a lot of Indian kids do like taking standardized tests. It's, we just love, it's it's like the play the dot game as I was told. Um, so did that. And then I didn't, I got, my parents weren't rich enough to send me to school, uh, you know, pay for my education. So my dad told me it's either full scholarship or you don't go. So I said, shoot, like, what do I do? Like, if I stay here, my life is, like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Do we think about that or what? So I applied the first time. I got a partial scholarship in New York, and my dad said, no, I'm only paying for your plane ticket. Fine. So he said, you can apply again. Maybe you need more experience or whatever. So I said, shoot, do I think about failing? Because once you think about failing, then it opens up room for thinking about backup plans. And I don't want to do that. So I said, no, you're not going to think about that. You just have to get out. That That is it. And so the second time around, I worked my, I don't know if I can say this, worked my ass off. Um, they can beep that out. But um, I think they've heard that word before. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I worked really hard just to get experience because I didn't have to take my tests again. My scores were fine, but I lacked enough experience to make up for that because our academic systems are different, the number of years in school. So I had to do that. And the second time round, I think I applied to 30 schools. I got into 25 of them, all with full financial aid. So I, was, I said, I am leaving and getting out. So I decided to go to the University of Cincinnati and I was accepted into a program in molecular genetics. And I went there and... I knew I was going to come out soon 
because I had ex- internally accepted that I was gay. I knew I wasn't going to, that wasn't going to change, but you're still coming to terms with it. And within the first, I want to say three to four months, I came out to my closest friend in school and I had to come out to my family. Um, in the meantime, I kind of told my sister, I told my cousins, and then I said, I just don't know how to tell my parents. This is difficult. Um, because it's very easy talking to someone who I think is on the same age, kind of in that same age bracket as you, because the experiences are similar. You're watching the same TV shows and stuff like that. So it's it's easier to relate. But my parents, you know, my didn't. Um, and... But there were signs, I'm sure. Like my mother and I would watch uh, a lot of musicals together. Uh, we would go to shows together. So there were obvious signs. And everyone in the family said, we kind of guessed. So I said, okay. So then I had to come out to my family. I didn't know how to do it. So I sent my parents an email because I just didn't want to deal with it. And I blamed the time difference. Um, it is 12 and a half ahead. hours difference. Yeah, they're like a day ahead, right? So I could use that as an excuse. So I did that, and my dad was okay because he said he went to art school, and he says, you know, in art school, you meet a lot of people who are exploring, so it's fine. I didn't know what that meant on the left of that. Um, my mom's, on the other hand, had a really hard time because she comes from such a cons- conservative Catholic family. And because she had a love marriage, she thought she was being, I was being punished, and in a way she was being punished because of what she had done by marrying my dad, which was kind of silly. So it took a couple of months. We were still talking, but she had a really hard time. And then uh, the fortunate thing was that all my aunts and uncles from her family were extremely supportive and cool with it. So they were the ones actually who could, like stepped in and told her, like, you need to support him right now. It's not really about you. It's got nothing to do with that. So you need to get over that. And, um, you know... I was one of the fortunate people that kind of had a lucky experience where my family didn't disown me. Uh, it is not uncommon. And I know I still remember in school knowing a couple of people that were from different countries, India. And um, I had a friend who was also from China and they were gay, but they couldn't talk to their families. And so they had this one life that was going on. And then a whole nother life when their families would visit or they would visit them. And that was something that I knew I never wanted to do. I never wanted to have an arranged marriage where I was married to a woman and not only would I then destroy her life, but I would also, it it just doesn't make any sense. And I remember early on my dad telling me a story about one of his co-workers. She was married to someone who he thought was gay. They never lived together. And he said they had this, the couple had this relationship where they could see other people. But my dad always suspected He told me this after I came out. And he said, I always suspected that they had this arrangement and they had a child together just to prove to each other's families that, you know, they were a straight couple. And I told him, I said, I just cannot do that because it's not only your life at that point, then you're bringing other people into the equation and it just just isn't me. So I had the support and then... I was also really fortunate when I was at um, the University of Cincinnati at the College of Medicine, there was a supportive network of professors. One of my professors, uh, my immunology professor was gay and I knew he was gay, so I'd actually come out to him and he said, you know, I'll kind of 
walk you through this thing. If you need any emotional support, I'm there for you. And he also introduced me to a program that was in the school for um, medical students um, who were gay or questioning. And what they would do, they would have these potlucks once a month at a professor's house where they would kind of, it was a very casual atmosphere. Nothing was really discussed, but everyone who came in there was a lesbian or a queer or transgender person in in the school. And everyone was very supportive of each other. So I started to build this network of friends who kind of became family for me, away from family. So I, I was able to relate and converse with them about what they went through, uh, what I was going through. And it was very helpful. At the same time, I was also in the Midwest. And living in the Midwest, uh, coming out, I'd come from Bombay, which was such a large city. And then I was in Ohio, in Cincinnati, which was much smaller, which is kind of surprising because my impression of America at the time, having not traveled, was like every city is huge. And which is not the case. Um, the populations are also so different, right? And so the ratio of number of people per, what is it, per square mile or something is also this so different. So it was very, I wasn't lonely in that sense of not seeing people because I'm also an introvert, but it's also diff different when you want to connect with more people. And you, I kind of wanted to learn about the culture because I'm thrown into this new country that I've been excited to move to. I wanted to experience America for what it was. I had heard so much about it through movies, through TV shows. Um, everyone knows I love Buffy. So, you know, Buffy, the, you brought it up earlier today. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, you know, there were all these things that I was watching and it builds this notion in your head. And I kind of wanted to experience that. So I had started to, through my friends, we would go out. I started to experience America through food. I would save all my money. We didn't get a, paid a lot on a graduate stipend. So, we go out to restaurants, kind of experience Greek food, Italian food, which I think a lot of people take for granted. But for me, things taste different because if you have Italian food in India, it's very different from the way it tastes in America or it's very different from the way it tastes in Italy, right? And the same thing with Indian food, vice versa. So it was really interesting just to start to notice these new tastes, these new textures, these new names, these new dishes. It was very exciting for me. And I really started to enjoy that. And I started to cook at home because I had friends that wanted to eat Indian food. But at the same time, I also wanted to learn how to cook those dishes. So I started to do that in grad school. And when I um, started to do that, a lot of my friends would say, cook us a traditional Indian meal. And I didn't know what that was because I didn't grow up traditionally. So I couldn't serve them what th they wanted clearly because when we would go to restaurants, everybody would get naan or they would get a curry, or they would get tandoori chicken. Um, those were the things that, even in India, I went out to restaurants and ate them. And, yeah, I, I, I don't have, I mean, I like, you know, those were things maybe my aunts cooked on a special occasion. My dad may have tried something, but it wasn't something like naan was something that I never saw anyone make at home. And it was very difficult for me to explain those things to people. So that was kind of the first sign where I felt, wow, there's this whole gap of what India means to people and what's perceived in the West. Another experience was in grad school when I was uh, rotating in labs. One of my, I was eating pasta and my professor came up to me and said, hey, did you, that smells really good. What kind of curry sauce is that? And I looked at him and I said, no, it's, uh, it's marinara sauce from Kroger. 
And but that also created the impression to me that everything I touched, like the Midas kind of touch, it's like a curry touch. Everything I touched was becoming curry. And at that time, I still wasn't sh- looking into get into food by any means. Um, what happened at the time was the government had moved funding from research and they were mo- discretionary funding and mo- it was moving into defense because we were at war with the Middle East. And I started to notice my professors who were well-established. You know, they had published a lot of papers, several degrees. They were losing lab funding and losing labs. And it was kind of horrific for me because I had given up everything to move in and then everything suddenly seemed shaky. So what? So I felt very nervous about a career in science. I'd also come out. I was uncomfortable. I still needed to accept it for myself. And I wanted to take a break. So I passed my qualifying exams. And then I said, I could go through this or I could just quit and just refresh. And that's what I did. I quit much to the annoyance of my parents. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to walk away with a master's degree, not get my doctorate and leave. So I came to, got a job at Georgetown in DC. I wanted to be in a bigger city. Um, And so I moved to DC. I didn't want to go to New York. I was kind of scared about New York. Um, because I said, oh my gosh, I don't think I can afford to live in New York. And it also, I really wanted to do it, but it just felt like at that stage in my life, D.C. would probably be a good compromise. And so I moved to D.C. I also had a bit of family there. I moved to D.C. I got a job, job at Georgetown, and I started doing medical research there. So I was working on people and testing drugs. Um so it was exciting because I was working with patients now so I could see things that were tangible. But again, the same thing started to play. Research funding, it was being wiped out again and again. And people were losing these large NIH R01 grants for millions of dollars. And then labs were being shut down. People were moving. So it felt like a very high-risk business, something that my parents had always stressed out on being such a stable field suddenly became one of the most riskiest things to be in because you're really not in control of where your money comes from. And I didn't like that. That really turned me off. I thought living in D.C. and then interacting with a lot of people in public policy and politics, I would actually live in D.C. So I thought, why not let's go and get another degree? So, which is probably, I don't advise people to do that now, but I was working in Georgetown during the day and then I decided I was going to go full-time and get a degree in public policy. So I went to Georgetown School of, uh, it's now called the McCourt, public policy school, got into that. And so I would do both simultaneously. Um, And it was exciting, it was fun because I was meeting new people. But again, at the same time, it was morning academia, night academia. And it, as much as I like taking standardized tests, it got really boring. Um, I started, I was also cooking for friends that I'd made over there. And then one thing led to another and my friends started to say, why don't you write a blog. And I said, um, I don't know what a blog is. And so a couple of my <laughs> friends, yeah, uh, introduced, and the, by this time, computers had become a thing. Okay. So I, I know I started off saying that computers weren't a thing and now they were a thing. So it's the internet instead of encyclopedia. Yeah. yeah. And um, what would happen when I got it through my friends, got introduced to a couple of blogs, in I experiments at it, the lab, you'd have these long incubation periods where you're waiting for, um, I was doing vaccines at Georgetown. So I was, you know, waiting for the virus or whatever to do its thing. And then you'd have like eight hours to do nothing. So I would sit on the computer and then go through blogs. And blogs are so visual. Even then, back then, they were highly visual where people were taking these fantastic photos about 
traveling to these places, I would look at photos from India and say, oh my gosh, that is so exotic. <laughs> like, I haven't seen this side to India. And like, why, how did I miss out on this? And so it was really exciting. So I was spending hours and then I would get really upset when I would reach the end, the absolute end, or rather the first post of a blog. There was not no more content for me to peruse. And it started to catch on. I said, this is exciting. Maybe there's something to be said for writing a blog. And But I said, I really don't know computers except for doing my usual spreadsheets or writing things in Word. And then I don't know how to take photos because even though my dad was a photographer growing up, I didn't learn how to use a camera. In fact, I hated cameras as a child. His equipment was always an eyesore to my mother and to me because we would always step over stuff and then he'd yell at us because it was so expensive, you'll damage it. Um, so we were never allowed to touch it. I guess the apple doesn't fall too far away from the tree though. And I started my first blog, which was actually called Anatomy of Cooking. I did that for a, a couple of months and I thought I was going to approach food from the science perspective and everything. It was too much work. And I gave it up. I said, you know, I'm not doing this. Um, a couple of months later, I started dating my now husband and we were on the first trip to visit his family. He told his mom that I had started to write a blog and, for, and they live on a rural farm. Somehow she knew about blogs and she said, no, I think you should write a blog. They don't get good internet for the longest time. They had dial up and I think the past maybe three years they've moved to high speed, but it's really bad because everyone uses, we're in the digital age, right? Everyone's using data. So if all of us get on the phone at the same time, it just crashes. It's so sad. Still, um, they live in Virginia, North Carolina, in a, on a farm. And she said, I think you should go back to do a blog. So I said, okay, but my photos are crappy. Um, and she said, well, maybe you need to practice, you know, get a good camera. And so I looked at him and I said, okay, like your mom's like insisting, so I should do this. So, right. So I looked into it and I said, let me do this in a little bit more respectful, like in a more respectful manner, like every, all these like fancy people are doing it. Maybe I should do it and get close to that a little bit. So I started a blog called A Brown Table. Uh, the blog was called A Brown Table. The name came up because actually I'm really bad at coming up with names. So I said, well, one of the things that right now is really a predominant focus in food styling is wooden, like these wooden tables. And I had taken two planks from my husband's uh, parents' farm, from the barn. And I said, that's going to be the brown table. So that's how the first, the brown part of that. The second thing was I was also going to allude to the fact that my skin was brown because I thought it was funny. So um, I said, I'm just going to be cheeky and call it a brown table. For, and no, I'm I said, I'm sure no one's going to get that, but it, it's funny for me. So... My husband's white, just in case you're wondering. But, so he said, okay, he's always uncomfortable about these things. So we start, you know, a brown table was born. It was two wooden planks on a trash can. We were living in our condo in D.C. It was a basement condo. And I would come back from school at night because I was still in public policy at that time. And then I would photograph, cook and photograph at night. What happened was basement condo, East Coast, D.C., most of, I feel, the East Coast, especially in the upper north part, is predominantly, there's no sunlight, right? It's cold for the most part of the year. And I had to learn how to photograph with artificial light before I started to use natural. So a lot of the photos initially were shot that way. And started to do that, and I was having fun. 
I was writing about things that I wanted to talk about, but share a perspective on India in America at the same time, the way I saw it, not the way people were being shown or what was being represented. Like I didn't grow up eating naan, so I had to learn how to make naan. So I wrote about how I learned how to make naan. And curries, I don't talk about curries. I didn't do that in the book on purpose because I feel there's so much more to the country that I grew up in. So I kind of wanted to share that perspective, but also come across from an immigrant's perspective, what it was for me to discover things here, make it my own and share that with people because that's what I was doing with my friends when they would come to visit. I was cooking things the way I wanted to and started to do that. I was also exploring things that I really liked to eat that were outside Indian culture, like Greek food, because I had learned, I had tasted spanakopita for the first time and I thought that was so delicious. And so I would actually cook, one of the things that I loved to do was to cook an entire Greek meal for my friend who was actually Greek. Um, and so it was like, you know, a lot of these, like for me, it was so much fun because I was exploring and writing about it. Um, at the time, my husband was working, uh, he's from the military and then had moved, done his time and then moved away. And he wanted a break from defense. And he got a job out here in California. So he said, we're going to move. So we got we got married by then. We moved to California and we were living in South Bay, in Santa Clara, right on the border of Santa Clara, Sunnyvale. Because he had made a career change, I told him, hey, I kind of want to make a career change too. I want to go to culinary school. Neither of us knew anything. And I... Didn't have a romantic idea about it, but I did know that it, I knew that it, it's a very perceived as a glamorous field because the TV shows had started to come out by then, you know, Top Chef and all those things. But at the same time, I also knew it was a high risk career from what my mom had told me early on. And then from the friends that I had started to make in the field. So I knew it was kind of a dicey thing to be in, but I was really enjoying the experience of the food blog. And things were taking off for me. People were kind of enjoying what I was writing. And so it kind of feeds, it feeds you, right? So you're getting excited. And I was fed up of science. I was just wanted to get away from it. So initially, I was working at a pharmaceutical place in South Bay for a couple of months when we moved. And then I told him, I said, hey, I want to go to school. So let me apply. So I applied, did the interviews. Um, we didn't qualify. So my husband had leftover military benefits. But at the time he left, they would not transfer them to the spouse or kids if we had any, um, just because of the time that he left. The law had was it was one of those retroactive laws which would take effect if he had left after a certain point, but not when he left. So we couldn't use those loans, and I didn't want to take a loan, having never had a school loan and going to something that is so high risk. It didn't make any. It scared me. I didn't want that. So I said, maybe I shouldn't go to culinary school. I'm going to go out and see if I can work in a kitchen and see if I actually like it before trying to make this big major life change. And he was okay with that too. Kind of like my parents where he was supportive, but much more supportive than they were, but also a little nervous that he wants to make this big jump, which in reality sounds crazy. And I was... I decided, you know what, I'm, I really wanted to do pastry because I have a sweet tooth. I wanted to do pastry. And it's also more scientific. It's There's a lot of precision. And I enjoyed that. So I called up 12 to 15 pastry places 
that where where we lived, one lady called me back and she said, "You called up my other store," and I didn't know that they were connected at this at that time. And she said, "You called up at both stores. You sound really serious. Why don't you come in and stage, and we'll see how it goes." And I met up with them, told her like my background. I was working at this pharmaceutical company, and she said, "You know, I'm just going to pay you eight or nine dollars an hour, nothing more." And so make sure you want to leave your high paying job to do this. And I said, "It's risky, but." You know, it sounds exciting. I really want to do this. And if I don't do it now, I will go through life regretting not doing it. So that would be a bigger thing. At least try it, fail, and then move on. So I staged. What I would do, uh, the hours are early in a patisserie. So you usually start at about 4, 4.30. And then you're done by noon, depending on your shift. Mine was the early morning shift. So I lied at the pharmaceutical place. I told them I have a family emergency for two weeks. So I would... Bike in the morning to the pastry shop, um, you know, changed. I staged for two weeks and then I would go home in the afternoon, take a shower because I was so scared of the smell of cocoa and vanilla <laughs> that they would feel that something shady was going on. And bike back to the pharmaceutical place, get my experiments done and then come home. Um, but it was the thought of going to the pastry shop that excited me the most. And I wasn't sure at that time whether it was just the newness of it or was I really interested in it. And I said, the only way to find out is if she lets me stay on. And she did. She made the offer and she said, are you really sure? After two weeks, she said, your work's good. You know, you've got the ethic, you're excited. So I'm going to offer it to you, but it's $8 an hour or $9, I don't remember. So I said, I spoke, went home, spoke to my husband. He said, it's fine, I'll support you through this. And that's a very important thing. It's you know, to have someone who supports you financially also. I was fortunate to have that. Um, and I started to do it. My parents were freaking out because they thought the blog was, okay, he's just like, it's a hobby. Um, he's doing it for fun. And, you know, let's just entertain that. And when I decided, I didn't tell them I was doing all this. When I finally told them that I had quit, they freaked out. It was, I think, harder for them to deal with that than me coming out. And there were all these things where my, mo- my mom and dad would tell me, like, what if you get divorced tomorrow? You can't survive on being a cook. So I said, we're not even, like, going down this route of, uh, of the what ifs. Let's just focus on what's happening right now. So I didn't tell them much. I just pursued. And I really enjoyed it. At the same time, I also started to freelance quite a bit in photography and writing because I had also trained I was self-taught in cooking as well as in photographs and I had started with in DC I bought a Nikon Coolpix point and shoot camera and I started with that once I got comfortable with that I went and got a Nikon DX which is one of those um, it has a smaller frame started with that got comfortable with that and then moved on to the full frame when I got more comfortable with that and so I taught myself to do these things by looking at old books, old photography books, and through cookbooks. So I'm working here at this place. Um, One of the things I noticed while working there was, and this is something I had never paid attention to, even when I ate at restaurants across the country, the people that were working in the kitchen, and at this place, we had uh, the owner was Persian. Um, I was Indian, obviously. Uh, there was a Vietnamese lady working. There were two Vietnamese ladies working there. There was um, two Mexicans. There was a kid who was Japanese. There were all these people from all over. But the person that ran the front, even though the owner was Persian, the person that ran the front was a white kid. 
And every restaurant that I had been to had the same thing. We would, I would go out with my husband and I couldn't understand why it was such a rare thing. And I actually, I will say that in California, it's very different. You do see a lot of people from all over because this is the state with the largest immigrant population. So you do, it breaks the rules in many ways. But like in DC on the East Coast, I never saw that. And I, I didn't understand why. I didn't pay attention to it. But when I started work at the patisserie, that's when I started to pay attention. Like, it didn't make sense to me. As I was learning to photograph, I was also looking at food magazines, at media. Pinterest had come out at that point. And everything that I saw, there, were, there was no representation of people who were not white or that had a really light skin being shown in mainstream food media. And I was looking to those photos, to those uh, places for inspiration. And it really surprised me because just thinking logically about it from a marketing standpoint, you want everybody to buy your product, right? You want to see your product and you want your consumer to feel comfortable holding that in their hands. They should be able to feel that. Why is that not happening in this country? And it made me feel a little uncomfortable. So I thought... A, I knew that I really liked to do, at this point, I'd become comfortable and a better photographer than I was before. So I wanted to do instructional food photos. So I said, if I incorporate myself, it's, I'm also being in my own way, kind of being a voice, a silent voice for people who I'd worked with and pay homage to them. So I started to do that in my photos, showcase my hands. Um, you re Rarely, originally, I would not show my face too much because I just wanted people to feel that anybody could be in that position in the kitchen doing something, be it the simplest thing, like, you know, cutting something or squeezing a lime. Um, and so I started to do that. What was really interesting, and this was unexpected, I had come from a medium or rather a career where you're used to being criticized on your academics or your research ideas and your prof you're taught in your uh, in medicine that at least and I think I think this is in any uh, degree program that your pro professors are taught or rather will train you to be taken down but from the quality of your work but not for who you are when I started to photograph myself I started to get these anonymous comments about the color of my skin um, you know, being too dark, too ashy, or like burnt hockey parts. And having not also seen brown people in media, I kind of felt that maybe they're right and I don't have a space to represent myself or my work the way I want to. And maybe they're right because that's not something that sells. So I was very uncomfortable and actually took a step back because I was getting a lot of these anonymous comments originally and I was not used to being trolled. Um... And I decided that I was going to go back and maybe leave. And so I took a break for a while. And then I started to think about it in a much more logical fashion because this is like a thing like how scientists are trained, where should I give someone the opportunity to take away something from me that I had really started to love a lot? And I said no, because... I had already taken a really large risk in leaving something that was potentially really stable in science to doing something that is not. And I'm having fun at it more than I ever did in science. Um, should I give them more power? But it took a couple of weeks to kind of, um, actually a couple of, I want to say like it was like two months of me just going back and forth with myself whether I really want to do this or not or put myself out there and be vulnerable. And I decided to stay on with it so I can continue to work at the place um, and then kind of just pushed pushed through it. And then 
as my work started getting recognized, um, you know, those comments kind of started to subside. I'd won, a, I'd won an award by then, and then I got another award. And I think what um, awards do for, you know, people who are not represented in media is that they give, it gives like this stamp that it's, you matter, you're okay. And, you know, people then kind of say, well, is someone, and this is a very sad thing to say, but is someone of um, like a position and privilege or power is accepting that, then it's okay for everyone else too. And that's what it is. Um, so, you know, I continued and then luckily along the way, I met a lot of people who were really supportive um, and really interested in my work for the quality of the work. And I started to work as a food photographer. At that point, we bought a house in Oakland. So I moved to Oakland and I had to leave my job at the pastry place and worked as a food photographer in San Francisco for a year. And at that time, I started to do more freelance work. I kind of wanted to do more and more freelance food writing. So I started to write for magazines. And then at that point, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle approached me to write a column for them. So that's how my column was came about. And then at the same time, I signed the book deal, which is where um, season came. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to say, you are an interviewer's dream. Yes, <laughs> talking. <laughs> I do talk a I'm lot. I'm just I know. spellbound and so interested. I forgot what I was going to ask you, but it doesn't matter. This okay. is such a this is such a beautiful book, and what you Thank just you. said around photographing your hands. I was saying to to over uh, dinner, I was just saying that it's not that often that you see a photograph in a cookbook of the chef's hands, but all through the book, you're doing all kinds of things. I mean, you you are so uh, inviting and passionate and creative and inclusive. Like just holding a picture is that uh, nuts? Nuts. Just a. Uh, just, a, I've seen this just holding many a bowl <laughs> with nuts and seeing your beautiful hands all through all through the thing, and it's not easy to take pictures of food. I mean, I've been at dinner. It's with, definitely a different skill. I've like, a, yeah, I've been at dinner yeah. with friends and we we're trying to take a picture for Facebook or something, and it's like I can't do kids. That looks, <laughs> yeah, I can't. But put you're it. you've really developed it in, in this incredible way, like just a drop of oil onto the uh, margarita pizza or whatever it is. Sure, I, I think one of the things I really I had left science to be in food because I really love cooking more actually than the final product. Sure, everybody loves the, you know, the hero, we call it the hero shot. I love the hero shot. But I think one of the things that I felt was missing was the process. I had left this career to cook and I felt that it really wasn't paid much attention to. So I started to do that. That was my point of view visually to focus on the process of cooking and celebrate that because I felt it really wasn't being done, at least from what I had seen. And so now the book is out and you're traveling the world uh talking about it and signing copies and yeah it's been it's been fun to see how receptive everyone's been to the book and uh yeah and uh one of the things i was asking you about earlier is what's next are we going to get to see you on a cooking show or a netflix series because you you have a you're a natural well i did sign i'm working on another book um there's no date but i have signed a deal to work on a new book so i'm can we you just, give us a preview of what the next book will be? Well, I don't even know. We just signed oh. the thing. I <laughs> met with my editor today to discuss kind of um, the direction. But it will be a follow-up. In general, it will kind of lead off to this. I'm really passionate about pursuing flavor. Um, so I want to talk more about that from where this was more of an introductory book about my life, uh, where I'm coming from, why I think the way I think, why the way I cook. And so the next book will kind of expand on that, hopefully in a much more... Um, fun way 
than this was. This, I mean, this was fun, but you kind of want everything to be more fun than the previous one. Yeah, I can tell that you uh, really enjoy the the fun in the kitchen and the experimentation yeah. and and the fact that you almost welcome people to modify these recipes and make them their own and mm-hmm. make mistakes and not be afraid. And I think that's the thing that's the most, most special about the book is you you actually talk, you, you write the way you talk, which is you can do this. Yeah, I mean, I want people to, I think one of the things that I learned living in India is you're told you can fail and your parents will remind you all the time that you can fail. I came here and everyone's taught to succeed. You never fail. And so I've noticed that as I've written recipes over the years, as I've interacted with people, that everyone wants things, they want things to succeed the first time. The most important thing to remember, and this is something I learned cooking because I had to learn by myself, I never remember things I've succeeded at. The only things I remember are the things that I fail at. And that's what makes me a better cook or a better photographer or a better writer is because I know then I need to fix that. How do I fix that? It makes me think logically. And I think that's a, a skill people need to really celebrate is to learn how to fail. We don't celebrate failures as much as we do successes. But can you always eat the failures? <laughs> Not necessarily. But I think, <laughs> again, that's, I think for me, that's, I mean, sure, like there are, you know, like financial considerations to think about time. But there are things that you could do simply like fry an egg, right? And you, it's be, it's it's good to know how to fry an egg properly, Which right? Is how? Um, like if you are so used to using a nonstick skillet, like my mom is, she will never venture into cast iron or stainless steel. I've learned to use stainless steel and I, I don't use nonstick in my house. So she panics when she comes over for the one thing that she cooks for herself. <laughs> um, but it's kind of like those things, like you need to learn how to be adaptable. It teaches you these things. And not only does it manifest in food, it starts to manifest in your life. For me, I was an introvert. I I was not very confident, but it was making these mistakes and learning how to fix them that made me much more confident. Becoming a confident cook made me a confident person in other parts of my life. And these skills start to manifest themselves. And I think it's so important for people to try these little things at home. It's something so simple. Right, instead of uh, not something that has to be like an elaborate project, you become better than at that project at work, just because of the skills that you've gained here. Well, we have just a few more minutes before we're going to go to uh, some questions from all of you. Uh, it's it's interesting because you you say uh, mine is the story of a gay immigrant pulled through food, and then you go on to say that. My food has always been about wanting people to accept me, but I'm also looking for acceptance from myself. Yeah, I think one of the things that, um, I mean, it's true, I am gay and I'm an immigrant. (laughs) But uh, one of the things is that we're always looking for acceptance, not only me just because I'm gay and an immigrant, but I would obviously want people to accept me for what I'm creating, the food I'm cooking, for my culture that I grew up with, and also the country that is now my home. Um, obviously I use my food to kind of connect my past, present and future, but at the same time, and I'm sure everyone else goes through this too, whether you're an immigrant or you're gay or not, um, you're ultimately looking for acceptance from people because you want people to see who you really are, right? Or, and at the same time for me, I'm also looking to accept myself because I want to feel like I am doing things the right way. I'm, you know, contributing to society usefully, but I'm also getting to share a story with people that comes from me. And I'm comfortable in sharing that. I'm also 
you know, I always say even when coming out, acceptance wasn't something that happened overnight. It's a process that takes a while. Um, and so, you know, those were, I think that's kind of what I want people to get from the book is that it's okay to be different. It's okay to share your stories and it's okay to be vulnerable because for me, one of the things I did with this book, since this is the first book, I kind of wanted to introduce myself to people. But I'm also thinking back to the child that I was, that I had no one to look up to that was like me. And so hopefully, you know, the kid that's questioning their existence or their life or whatever, you, you know, they're going through or, you know, some kind of personal issues that they feel that there are people out there like them that have had, um, you know, a good journey. So you don't want them to feel alone. I mean, that's, that's my take from it. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for the book. It's, oh, thank you. I think we're very fortunate you didn't end up in medicine, not that you wouldn't have been a fine doctor. Oh. <laughs> But the fact probably you, not. But, but the yeah. fact you've created this and, and given the world this is is such an incredible gift. And oh, thank you. I look forward to uh, my my partner does most of the cooking. I'm really the cleanup guy. Okay. But uh, I started looking at this. I thought, you know, I want to make this butterscotch squash and tea soup. And I started looking at the ingredients. And I said, I can find these things. <laughs> it's not. They're not so exotic. And even tell tell yeah. me where the spice uh, shops are here in the San Francisco and where to find the things. Yeah. I, I definitely wanted to do that so people kind of have go uh, locations in the north, south, east, west, at least in the major parts of the country. And the other thing that's really helpful is that you actually took photographs of the ingredients, like all yeah. the, all the different uh, chilies and things. Uh, you, you, you have I feel a whole people page of them. better through photos more than anything these days or videos. So I really wanted uh, a visual comparison for people say, hey, I can go to the store and maybe like just look at the photo or you don't have to ask for help because I used to get embarrassed asking for help sometimes at the store. But this kind of makes it easy. If you know what it looks like, you can go to the store, quietly pick it off from the shelf and not have to ask someone for help. Because often people who work at stores also don't know what they're selling. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DeMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fork. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.